0: Hey, family, I am Mark and we are the Kinship Collective ending otherness, celebrating our stories and reimagining scripture together. This week, we have an incredible workshop conversation with Ed Oxford. It's going to go a bit long. You're going to love every single moment of it. He shares from his personal perspective and his personal research he's putting together. He's a researcher on a movie called 1946, which is when the word homosexual is first translated into the Bible uh, by the Revised Standard Version. And he shares about the process of researching that, going from library to library, looking for a needle in a haystack and the ways his assumptions drove some of the research and him encountering, oh, wow, this is an honest, good hearted mistake, but one that has cost so much and has created so much harm and pain and depression in our world. It's incredible, he shares about that, the ways that his research has transformed him. And then he and I talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse nine and 10, and he breaks down these root words, what they actually mean. The reality that Paul in this moment is actually trying to cultivate and create. You're gonna love every single moment you're gonna share, you're gonna re-listen, because it's that freaking good. Welcome to the Kinship Collective. Here's our friend, Ed Oxford.
1: He's a graduate of Talbot Theological Seminary or Talbot School of Theology, where I almost went to school down in La Mirada. And he is doing some fascinating work around a biblical interpretation, how the word homosexual first found its way into the Bible. So he's working on a book right now called forging a sacred weapon and he's working he's a researcher on a movie called 1946 the movie project ed welcome to the conversation welcome welcome Um, i'm i'm thrilled you're here ed i have some so how did you find yourself researching for this project. Can you share with us a little bit about what the 1946 movie project is about and how you found yourself there?
2: Sure, absolutely. So basically, um, I'm an extremely inquisitive person. I always have questions. I want answers. I think my mom would have said, I asked too many questions growing up, but I want answers to things. And so Um, being LGBT and Christian doesn't quite mix very well. Um, and so as a result, that's made me pretty depressed and suicidal for most of my life. And, um, I started to kind of think I wanted to dig into this deeper as far as what scripture says. I had always assumed I knew what scripture says and dropped it at that. And just how do I figure out my life based upon what I was interpreting as facts. And then when I started questioning things as I have done my whole life, one of the questions I had was. Um, after I went to a seminar by Kathy Baldock, I, one of the many things I learned was that the word homosexual was not in the Bible until 1946. And I couldn't understand why, because you know, my first thought was what words were there before and why did it change and who changed it and what was the reason for changing it and you know, what's the history behind all of this and what happened? Mm-hmm. So I started digging into it and I found out that the group of people that did it were the translators for the Revised Standard Version of the Bible Um, who were translating the the Bible during the 1930s and came out with the New Testament in 1946. They continue with their translation of the Old Testament and then published the full Bible in 1952. And so I started doing, as we can always do, research as much as you can on the internet and found out that there were 90 boxes of archived material at Yale University, which is primarily where they did their work and their meetings for the most part, some there and some in New York City, but mostly on the East Coast and um i couldn't find anything online because they had not yet uploaded it um so i contacted yale and they said that these materials can only be seen in person you have to make an appointment you have to get a library card for yale etc and so i signed up for all that called kathy baldock and she said i'm going with you i want to find out too because the question was who did it why did they do it can we get a bigger story in this and up until then you know i create as a researcher, I'm not a professional researcher, I'm a professional financial advisor, but as a researcher, you have to create a theory and then you work to prove or disprove that theory. So my theory originally was 1946, sounds like right after World War II. And around that time was when we see the beginning of gay culture, modern gay culture as the gay clubs, gay bars and things like that. Because hordes of guys would be jumped off, dropped off and major port cities like New York, San Francisco, LA coming back from the war efforts. And as they were dropped off, the war was over, they're celebrating, they're staying in town a few days, everybody's having fun, it's a big party and long story short, they're meeting other people that are similar to them. And it starts this underground movement of gay bars and gay clubs, so to speak, during that time. And so we start to see arrests being made and we see newspaper articles, you know. 20 homosexuals were arrested in such and such street last night, 30 homosexuals were put into jail and they would you know, shame publicly shame them by showing their pictures all over the newspapers and so forth in an effort to kind of thwart this movement that was taking place. And so I thought the culture of the day was kind of what we might call anti-gay or anti-homosexual, so to speak, um, and, and the word homosexual was being learned by the regular public at that time since we started to see it appear in newspaper articles and things like that. Because the word homosexual started in 1862 by a German psychologist. We don't see it enter the US until the 1890s. We don't see it in the first dictionary until the 1920s. So we don't really see it in the newspapers until actually the 30s and 40s to where it's kind of a a known word, word on the street that people know, which is why it took in one way a while for that word to kind of even make it into public conversation And then they had that word, and so we thought. Right, my I thought my theory was maybe these people. There was this anti-gay sentiment in the nineteen forties, and these theologians were coming to town saying, "Hey, let's just nail this in the coffin." And you know, this is close enough. It's a there's a same-sex abusive something going on here. So let's just put homosexuals in there and call it a day. Well, you know, that'll that'll put these homosexuals away. And so I thought there was a little bit of malice almost. And so what I did was. I had this theory going in. And so when we went to Yale, the first thing, by the way, we spent three days in the archives before we found anything of what we were looking for. It just took like a needle in a haystack. It was beyond a needle in a haystack. So the first three days, we're going through notes and letters and correspondence between different people and all kinds of things. So we really got to know this amazing translation team, amazing, far ahead of their years, um, they were they were very in tune with um, justice, social justice issues, even in the 30s. And so we would find letters where they would say, "You need to have a woman represented on your committee because you have no women and you you only have white guys there." And they'd say to this other letter that we found, "You need to have African Americans." They used the term Negro back in the day, but African Americans on your committee. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not really having a full understanding of what everybody is saying. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, this other letter came through and they said this little old lady she said dr Weigel he's the head of the translation team she said i'm just a you know a housewife what do i know um but i we have a problem in our community there's a poll tax now poll tax is when you had to pay a dollar in their community for a registration card to vote and if you couldn't pay the dollar you couldn't register if you couldn't register you couldn't vote so she said it's not fair because the poor people in our town can't vote and if they have a dollar, they're going to spend it on food, not on a registration card. So could you please write Congress and let them know? And so he wrote Congress. He said, yes, ma'am. And he wrote back to everybody who wrote him. Some people wrote him on napkins and he would write them back.
3: He would have mm-hmm. a letter
2: typed up and write back to them. And he said, yes, ma'am, you're absolutely right. We, would, uh, we, don't, we shouldn't have a poll tax. And so he wrote Congress and there's no poll tax anymore. Obviously, voter suppression comes in other shapes and sizes, as we all know, but that's what the issue was of the day and they kind of dealt with it then which was kind of interesting so in the 1930s this was ahead of its time this was incredible and so i was like wow you know we're not going to see this this kind of you know angry hatefulness toward the gays that i was expecting in some of the notes so what are we going to find and it just that was my my only theory that i had put together so i had no idea what else we were going to find i just thought we're going to find. A bunch of angry white men, you know, that don't like the gays, and we're going to find just a little bit of malice in their words, and bring this before the world and say, "Here, here's what we found. We all we were looking for was the truth. What happened in those conversations?" Mm-hmm. And I even started putting together a list of all of their their descendants and grandkids and great grandkids, seeing who I could contact to find out what went on during these days. Maybe they had family stories that they talked about the translation days and so forth, and so what happened was on the third day we found a letter written by a 21 year old seminary student to the translation team saying i think you made a mistake when you put the word homosexual in here and here's why i think you made a mistake and he wrote a three-page single space typed letter with a page of an appendix attached all kinds of footnotes and information and just i was surprised that he had that much information because the letter was written in 1959 so i was really surprised And remember, so the whole Bible comes out in 1952. So people don't get a hold of it until 1952. Seven years later, he gets this, the the translation team gets this letter. And when they respond, this is what I was looking forward to. What does the translation team say back to this guy? Because that is the crucial issue. Not that he wrote a letter. Not that he said a good point or a bad point. That doesn't matter. What does the translation team, because this is the only written documentation we have on the planet to show why they put the word homosexual in the Bible in the first place. And their response, the response came from Dr. Luther Allen Weigel, who was the dean of the Yale Divinity School. He was also uh, the head of the translation team. And he basically wrote back in summary and said, you know what, you actually have a good point here. We may have made a mistake and we need to take a look at this. And can we use your letter um, in our next um discussion when we talk about any changes we're going to make? And 30 days before they received a letter from this 21-year-old seminary student They had signed a contract just 30 days before they signed a contract with the publisher saying we're not gonna make any changes for 10 years because a publisher, Mm. it's expensive for them to just make a change here and there or Mm. upgrade or a typo or anything like that. So they said, okay, for 10 years, we're not gonna make any changes and it missed the cutoff by by 30 days. So the crucial thing that happened during those next 10 years were that the New International Version, which is the most published English Bible on the planet, the New American Standard Version, and the Living Bible, all three of those major English versions were being translated during the 60s, which was this 10-year period of hands-off on the RSV changes. So then I thought, well, we already know from looking at Bibles, and by the way, I have like 100 Bibles in my house. I have various English translations and other languages and so forth. So. We can see changes that they made. You have to actually go to those because there's no book that says this change was made and that change was made because it's right. just too massive. So what happened was um I went to you know we already know in our 70s versions that were published that were published in the 70s that were translated in the 60s. We already know where they put the word homosexual in those verses. It's not, you know, we already know where they put them and we just don't know why, right? So my next thought was when we were there at Yale, I said, Kathy, you know what we have to do next? We have to go to the archives and translation notes of those three versions and see why and how they put the word homosexual in there. Did they do research on it? What did they do? Long story short, they basically copied off the RSV and we have documentation to show that. So Mm -hmm. they basically said if the RSV made this decision, obviously they did their homework. We don't have to. And they plopped it into their Bibles and the rest is history. And nobody looked back. Nobody questioned it. So after these versions plopped it into their Bibles, then we see commentaries, lexicons, dictionaries, Bible help books come out, kind of giving quote unquote support, which is reverse engineering to the reason homosexual and yeah. bad things about homosexuals and how it's not in God's best interest and it's not you know the intended and it's unnatural and all these things, they would start this whole storyline going down there. So. And that's the thing, garbage in, garbage out. If you start with the wrong assumption, if you start mm. with the mistake and you have to show and prove that mistake, then you have, you're going to find all the supporting evidence that sounds like that. Like I use this example, I say, what if, for example, we have um, a person in front of us and, and this person, let's say her name is Jane and she, everybody, she's telling everybody her whole life, you know, that she's Italian and you know, her background is Italian, and she came from an Italian background, and she has these stories the family talks about and so forth. And so, and people write books about Jane, and they say, well, Jane's nose is a very Italian nose, and those eyebrows and the way her eyes are, it's classic Italian. And we Mm. go about just building this whole narrative around how Italian Jane is. And then one day she takes a DNA test. And we find out she doesn't have an ounce of Italian in her, just. Okay and so we find out that she has everything but italian and we find all of this other background that's in her that has nothing to do with an italian background and maybe we even find out that she was adopted by an italian family hence the italian name at one point so long story short there's reverse engineering going on there people are saying this is why jane's italian i can see it in her face and i know it and the way she approaches things mm-hmm. but once we face the truth and the dna test cannot lie that she doesn't have the italian in her then we have to proceed with the truth and go from there and i think this is what happened is oh it's homosexual that's what's not going in heaven that's the bad guy and so we see all of these commentaries and dictionaries and everything you know making up narratives to support this thesis and as a result we see doubling down um since the 70s so commentaries i see in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and i laugh when theologians of all people say, yes, but do you see what this commentary, do you see what this lexicon BDAG has to say? Do you see what these have to say about this? And I'm like, yeah. Have you seen the year it was published? Do you know the history of commentaries and when they put them together and how they put them together? Have you ever looked at a commentary before 1946? Have you Mm. looked at a 400-year-old commentary? Have you seen how this conversation has gone on for the last 2,000 years? Which makes me crack up because I am accused of being a revisionist, meaning I'm trying to revise what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you revised it in the last 50 years and you're calling me a revisionist? Right? Are you kidding me? No, yeah. I'm an originalist. I'm looking for the original meaning here, people. Mm-hmm. So I'm not looking for this 50-year-old Bible that you have. I'm looking for the last 500 years and the last 2,000 years of what this conversation has been saying. So oh, I think that that's basically kind of how it happened there. So as a result, when Kathy and I came back and we realized and this was a mistake and we realized we dug into it more and it turns out that um well we know that they made a change in their next version which came out in 1971 by the RSV team and by the way Dr Luther Ellen Weigel was 91 years old when that version came out and he was still on the team he was his mind was good because I read I read letters that he wrote when he was 91 he lived to be 96. But um, his legs weren't working very well, but wow, his mind was. His mind was incredibly good. And so he was on his top game. And so they had a conversation and they used these 13 pages of letters. And they even talk about referring to the 13 page file. That's how many pages were in this back and forth correspondence between Dr. Weigel and the seminary student and the pieces that they put together in the file. And so um, they referred to that 13 page piece and said, we need to to change this and what should we change it to? And they decided upon the term sexual perverts. Sexual perverts is someone we think of, you know, some dirty old man going to the playground with a trench coat and opening up his trench coat and shining himself to the the kids. That's a perversion, that's a sexual perversion. And so people that are abusing, using and abusing sex in a bad way um, are using and abusing others and using and abusing sex in order to use and abuse others. So it's that whole kind of abuse is returned to the nature of it in their their version in 1971. And if you look at the King James even uses the term abusers of themselves with mankind. So you even have this abusive nature, even in the King James version. And so Um, As we just dug into it deeper and we realized, but see, when the RSV, which was seen as a liberal version, then the NIV, NASB, and TLB, Living Bible, aren't going to look to them for advice, but they sure as heck looked to them for advice when they looked at the 1952 version and decided to slam it into their versions. Um, Obviously, they didn't give credit to that because, you know, that's not how they functioned at the time. And it was awkward that the translation teams would not have to talk with each other because that would have considered cheating. Although they looked at each other's notes, they looked at each other's versions, they looked at what each other had going on. Um, That's how translations are done. And so when we came back and uh, started having seminars to explain what we found, because we had a whole prayer team of people praying that we would find this needle in a haystack. And it wasn't what we expected. We expected to find some malice and we just found just amazing godly men who made a mistake based upon their understanding of homosexuality homosexuality at the time and kind of went from there. And so we started presenting just the facts of what we found. And uh, we were giving a talk in uh, in, uh, in Hollywood and Rocky, the director of the movie came in and she said, I wanna film you guys. And she did and she says, I want to document all of this. And at that point, we'd already started putting out a couple of things and we started getting a lot of people wanting to film us or follow us around with a camera and kind of document things. Even before we went to Yale, somebody said, let me follow you with a camera. And I said, we're going to be in a library. We can't even talk. So it's not going to, you know, and we're going to gather information and bring it home and read it, we think, because we might not have time to read it while we're in the library there and just gather it. So long story short, we went through um, that whole um, process of just explaining, you know, what we found and then it really hit a nerve with a lot of people and started making the rounds and now they're making the documentary out of it the book is uh, due to come out later this year um sacred weapon how the bible became anti-gay and then the movie uh 1946 the movie is due to come out in early 2022.
1: Mm, that you just said a lot and it's incredible it's 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 a beautiful thing a great thing I, i didn't want to stop you at all it makes me think two things one thing back to what you said about theologians and how many people like, what have you read and where have you read it? And when did you read it? And the amount of books that I've heard that are in your home that you told me about, about. um, So I think about, wow, I'm speaking to a brother who has probably done more research and more theology around this word without the, you know, Which a lot of people, I think like marginalized people, you don't get a choice. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't have a choice. I mean, he had a choice, but there is a part of him, like his existence was tied to the liberation that was tied to people of color at that time. And so for you, you didn't have that same choice you mentioned earlier that you were dealing with your own depression, your own suicidal thoughts around this part of who you are that was so dissonant with your Christian identity that you just, it was really hard to deal with. So the the one major thought is, wow, Ed has probably done more research and more thought around this word and translation in general and research. And I mean, it's just, so to me, I'm kind of blown away by that, but I also, then I turn back to what happens in you as you start to realize the trajectory of the word. And almost not just because you talked about, you've said malice a lot of uh, a few times around, oh, these people didn't intend to cause me all of the harm that I felt around this word. And you went in with that hypothesis, trying to prove that there had to have been some malice around this being here, because this isn't quite the translation that I would make of these two different words. What did you feel internally? Like did, did parts of you start to get aligned or how long did it take to kind of shake the dust off of what you encountered or experienced or learned at Yale and on this journey?
2: So how long did it take before we realized what we really found? Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I'm saying how long for you, I guess, well, that's the first part is like, oh, wow, this is really what's true. Mm -hmm. They actually went back. So they took this word out. They believe it doesn't belong here but that means something specific for you right it means like okay i belong i belong here i'm i'm included i'm not excluded mm-hmm. but i'm saying how did your heart your mental state your wellness start to align and heal around that truth as you encountered it
2: kind of around my personal journey huh right yeah 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 uh, it took a while because it's interesting because we as lgbt people mostly grow up feeling something's wrong with us, you know, if I get the right counselor, take the right pill, or one day I'll wake up straight or something like that. Because if God doesn't want this, then obviously he has provided a way out of it. And I just need to find that way out of it. And so I think we go through this whole mentality of one day I'm going to be married uh, with 2.2, with the wife and 2.2 kids and the white picket fence. You just have this impression of, you know, God's going to make it work out. For his honor and glory here and so i had to give up a lot of those dreams when i realized that's not the direction it's going to go that's not how it's going to come out um because i went into all this saying i want the truth regardless of what it is no matter how painful or exciting the truth is i want the truth regardless and i i've talked to a lot of parents of gay kids and they said they felt a similar way on their side of looking at it where they they had to give up their straight kid they actually had to like bury their straight kid because they didn't they never had a straight kid mm-hmm. and they had to kind of say goodbye to the straight kid and all these expectations as parents that they had that that kid would eventually have you know this mm-hmm. straight life and wow. so um even when you become affirming as a parent or as the kid you still have to go through a process of giving up and saying goodbye to this life that's never going to be that you always thought would be for some reason mm-hmm. so i think that that's part of the process there. Um, I wanted to step back to something you said a little bit earlier. You talked about, you know, digging into one of the few people digging into a lot of this. The interesting thing is before I went to Yale, I was paranoid that all of this information was going to already be checked out and I wouldn't have access to it. You know, I was going to go there for a week. I was taking a week off work. I'm going there. I don't have a lot of time. And so I kept calling. I The, the poor librarian was like, it's going to be here. Nobody checks this. Part out. Don't worry about you know. And I was like, but okay. Well, what happens if they do? What happens if we get there? Because we're coming all the way from California. (laughs) Now this is Yale. It's in Connecticut, next to near New York City, right? What happens if we get there and somebody else just checked it out? You know, we're twiddling our thumbs because we can't read and go through the stuff that we want. And they said they they explained to me if that were to happen, what would happen? You know, how we. Long story short, (laughs) when we got there, and I thought every non-affirming theologian on the planet has already. Dug through this because what, this is the first question you should ask. We didn't have the word homosexual in the Bible until 1946. It seemed to me like a logical question everybody'd be asking and everybody would know the oh, answer there and everybody'd be digging into. So I thought every theologian, affirming or non affirming, already combed through all this. They have a list of all the names for the past 80 years of everyone who's ever accessed this material since it became available.
1: Oh my Not goodness.
2: A single affirming or non affirming theologian. Author slash author name was on this entire list. No
1: one. Oh my goodness.
2: So we were the first people. And in fact, two out of the Bible, two of the Bible translation notes that we went to, when we went there, they said we were the first people to ever ask to look at the archives for any reason. Period. So <laughs> nobody checked us out. And when we were in Chicago going through the NIV translation notes, there was a packet that was about eight inches tall. And it was a, a stack of papers, it was the draft that w- had been sent back for proofing and so forth of, of, of the Bible. Mm. And it was st- sealed post office stamp 1968, and sealed and had not been opened since 1968, when it was sealed. And I was sitting across the table from Kathy Baldock at the time and I started crying. I said, Kathy, nobody Whoa. ever cared enough about us to even check this out? Do you realize this? Nobody even cared. What the heck is this? And so, I mean, we had evidence and proof to show in many ways to see that we were the only ones kind of checking this out. So I invite everybody to the table of discussion. I invite everyone to, to get more pieces to this puzzle and let's put it together. And if you find a piece, let's talk about it and let's go from there because it's a pretty complex issue. And so what I don't like is when a non-affirming theologian or a pastor tells me that I shouldn't be talking about this because I'm gay and I'm biased and therefore I, I, I have no right to be part of this conversation. And mm. I think actually almost the opposite is true. If there's a straight theologian or pastor who can't even relate to same-sex attraction, why should we allow them in this conversation when they have no idea what they're talking about? But mm. you know what? I'm not going to be like them. I invite them to this table, but don't they dare send me away from this table for a minute? Because if anything, um, I might care more about it than they do enough to the point to actually do work that they obviously haven't done themselves. So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I wouldn't say might, I would say back to, you didn't have a choice. So you're not choosing to participate in this thing, right? It's almost like you were scratching for, not validation or affirmation it's like something more basic than that you are scratching for your own dignity in life
2: just that if if i'm this horrible abomination that god doesn't even want me around and i was thinking about hebrews 12 4 when i said that in the movie was um if i'm such a horrible abomination that god wants me to rid this planet of myself i'm willing to do it because i love god that much and hebrews 12 4 talks about that you haven't yet resisted temptation to the form, to the point of shedding your own blood. And to me, I was, I was taking that literally, you know, if, if God was like so disgusted by me, you know, and so seeking the truth, seeking facts. And I wanted to look at the facts and let the facts reveal what facts do and go from there rather than And I see so many non-affirming theologians that take their thesis and then they look for information that affirms their thesis and their narrative. And then they double down on that and then they don't give you the full story or they hide part of it or they start with a thesis that hasn't been proven and assume it's proven and go from there. And the thesis that they start with is that all same-sex activity is sinful, yet that cannot be proven from the Hebrew or the Greek translations of the Bible that cannot be supported by scripture, unless you have a really bad translation. And so if you start with the bad assumption, then you're going to continue a narrative that might not be accurate. So all I ask people to do is let's just talk about facts. Let's get accurate about this and let's get honest about this and let's not discount people that just because we don't like them to be involved in this conversation.
1: Yeah. I, when you, um, I, I, well, I have some ideas for a way forward, but I have to uh, just reiterate the weight that it feels like to have been the first person on some of those lists, all of the lists. If I'm hearing you correctly, you go to Yale, this, this has to be right. With so much literature out there or the way I wouldn't even say like the, but the, the intense feelings of disgust that I have felt towards me from pulpits. That I have heard that I've seen there has to have been people who have taken this thing seriously to have gotten to that emotional state that I felt and to walk in and say I'm the first one we are the first ones looking at this to me that moment feels so heavy when it feels so important to you and then what you talked about being at the table and other people it's almost like I don't know how to say this but when you've worked so hard to create conversation and you came in open heartedly and open handedly and you're creating conversation and you're bringing back language and you've, you're doing the work to create this table and conversation and for somebody to come in and then try to kick you out of the table or, um, you know, just undignify who you are and all this work that you've done on, on a vanguard of this research it's um, that's a lot. But I think about, you know, when you talk about that conversation, I'm really curious about how you've navigated conversations with these people with contrary opinions. I watched one of the clips in the video is you're presenting information. And then there's a someone in the crowd who stands up and kind of aggressively like retorts against what you're saying in that moment. And what you're saying, which is interesting to me, because in different conversations, um, a few weeks ago, we had Candice on and there's been different people who've said, yeah, I haven't really encountered the kind of pushback that you might think. And maybe because they're not. Um, you're being claimed as to like trying to revise the actual quote unquote word of God. And so maybe people have different, more intense feelings against you than they would against Candace for whatever reason. How do you navigate those conversations?
2: It's interesting because um, a few weeks ago, some of the information about the movie made it up to a few top theologians um, on this conversation. And <laughs> they started putting together podcasts and YouTube videos and so forth. and. Um, So when it was happening, a a friend contacted me and and said, hey, they're, they're live right now and they're talking about you. And I was like, well, I'm busy. I'll look at it later. And so I went on there and sometimes I get upset because they misrepresent what I'm saying or they put words in my mouth that were never there or they just say things that simply are not true or or like Dr. James White does. He often uses studies that have been disproven and affirming and non-affirming sides don't even use these debunked studies. And yet he likes the statistics that they provide for his narrative. And so he'll continue to use them regardless of how debunked they've they've been proven. So I think that I get upset when I see those types of things. And um, it was interesting because they attacked me and they weren't attacking Kathy. And the best and these are really patriarchal people and so we the best we could figure was that women's voices like Candace might be because she's a woman and so they might just you know discount her and not even want to kind of talk with her but they go full throttle on me they were going full throttle on me and i don't know if it's because i'm the white male or because i'm gay or all of the above but um, i think i've interacted with a lot of people <laughs> over the last few years and I will purposely put myself into places where I can be anonymous and talk about some of the research to kind of test drive it, so to speak. And I'll put myself in very conservative, very anti-gay environments to do that. And I've noticed that whenever it's kind of a, a whack-a-doodle person, I just laugh and move on, you know? And... Sometimes people they'll see all my long responses. I mean they're, they're, I have pages upon pages of these conversations that I've copied and put into my notes. And there was this one lady who was just kind of bad. she was more professional about it and she says, well, what about the medical side about this? Well, what about you know the psychological side about this? What about and what about this first and what about that? And so she was fighting and she'd come back with pretty pretty good responses, but I copied the conversation. It was 25 single page spaces of this, just this one conversation with one person. That's not even the longest conversation I've had with people out there of going Mm -hmm. back and forth. Excuse me. So I've noticed that, you know, people when they attack me, I realize they're coming from a point of ignorance and that's not to put them down, but a point of, they haven't looked into this. They've been taught what I was taught for most of my life. They believe what I used to believe for most of my life. They might not have questioned it. They might not have looked into it. And I can tell you for sure, they didn't go to the archives at Yale because I didn't see their name in there. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I realize they, you know, and my job is not to change minds. My job is to educate people and let the Holy Spirit change minds.
3: Mm.
2: And So I want to kind of keep focused on that. But a, a few weeks ago, when these theologians and these Christians came in, well-intending Christians, they were my flavor of evangelicalism some of them graduated from the same seminary that i went to and when i saw the comments you know and in the particular trailer that they were looking at i talked about suicidal ideation and how depressed i was and so forth and they were mocking me in their comments completely mocking me oh man hurt me in a different way that all these you know kind of wackadoodle people don't bother me but this kind of hit me in a different way, because I was like, you know, in some cases, we studied the same program at Talbot, we had the same professors, we had the same Greek and Hebrew, we had the same mindset of be a Berean and dig in, like the Bereans dug into scripture. And yet, why aren't you digging in, you know, you know, oh, and so, and yet they can quickly point fingers and say these comeback phrases. And I notice a lot of people, they just say a comeback phrase. I'm like, they heard that from the pulpit. They didn't get that from the Bible, and so I realize it's just this continuous, repetitive conversation that they've heard from the pulpit. Like the word "choice." What did did you choose to be gay? That came from Jerry Falwell in the nineteen seventies. There is no choosing to be gay. People don't choose to be straight. People don't choose to be gay. It's a ridiculous thought. But yet, yep. some straight people think that gay people woke up one day and said, I think I'm going to piss everybody off and I'm going to be gay. Isolate myself.
1: Kidding? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So so I think that um, when I, you know, and I, I get a lot of response and, and I respond back to people and somebody says, why do you waste your time giving a response? And for two reasons. One is I'm test driving that response so that we can fine tune things in the book and the movie. And another reason is because I know that there are Thousand, we have over 10 million views and and comment and and looks at our various social media platforms. So you know there are millions of kids that are going through what I went through for most of my life, Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: I respond because I know they're going to read my response, which is kind of a, a a good response to what some of these crazy things these theologians and well respected pastors are saying, and so. I realize I, what I'm writing and saying isn't going to be well received by the person I'm responding to, but by the kids that read it, it might save a life.
1: And that, that is so important. And uh, I think, I mean, I, that's an interesting, my mind, my, my heart and my mind are there in, in two places. Cause I, I am inspired by your willingness to step into the arena on behalf of the younger people who, who, who need you to do that. And you're thinking, I need them to understand. I need them to hear this voice. I need them to see this response because they are valued and they are dignified and they are welcome. They are loved and they belong. That is so important. And my, I feel, um, there is a unique. Harm and hurt and pain that when you talked about, um, what it felt like to read these or to hear people mocking a suicidal ideation and a depression like to me when i heard you say that first of all i felt hurt and it just took it blew me back because it's like you could spend two hundred thousand dollars on quadruple phds or whatever to me that kind of posture towards another human being i mean on your worst day i i don't understand like i how and then a system that would like pedestal that voice or that that kind of humanity to me is a problem i mean it's it's highly problematic to me on many levels but like i'm trying everything within me just to not be like i i mean it's extraordinary immaturity i'll call it that for because i don't want to call it just pure evil how could you talk about somebody else's story and their 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 depression and mental angst and spiraling and self-harm and suicidal ideation and and make light of that like there's just zero empathy there, zero emotional intelligence zero it's just like that's i mean that's that's that is that is that's a whole lot for me i think
2: i think it speaks volumes of the person's character who says it and i think that when we see their true character it needs to make us question other things that are coming out of their mouths
1: wow <laughs> absolutely i think uh oprah i think says you know when someone shows you who they are believe them believe them yeah when someone shows you who they are believe them ooh yeah. um so to me though back to what you talked about wanting to advocate and speak on behalf of those who are younger than you to me that makes me think of you and the ways that you have found healing along this process so how did you change as a result of encountering this truth and along this journey of research and like in my mind i just for your whole life being told you're an abomination you're now welcome you need to change and you even said i had this idea one day i'll Eat the right amount of this, I'll do the right amount of that, and then I'll like get married, 2.2 kids, blah, 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 blah. I'm a financial advisor. The rest is already figured out. Money's working for itself right now. Just kidding. But you're like, you know, and then you're like, okay, that's not, that's not the dream anymore. But how how did you, I don't know, reorient your life around this newer, truer information?
2: I think I can speak for how it changed me personally as a person, and then secondly i want to respond to how i feel it's impacting the church as a whole this Mm -hmm. entire conversation Mm -hmm. Um, so for me personally um it's interesting because i've always loved scripture i've always had a high respect for god's word um i've always um, believed in the inerrancy of scripture and the 1978 chicago doctrine of inerrancy and i just the problem is i think a lot of Evangelical Christians don't understand it, so they abuse it, and they misuse the doctrine of inerrancy, and they completely misquote it, and it's it's a mess. But if they really understood it properly the way it was intended, I think um, we would all be having a different conversation right now. But looking for, at me personally in my own life, I think it's made me see God much bigger than I ever thought I could. And I did not realize until I stepped into this that I had been putting God in a box. I did not realize what a box I had put God in. It was just incredible. I had no idea. Um, and so it's almost like when I read scripture now, I'm reading it in color. Whereas before, I think I was reading it in black and white. Ooh-wee.
1: Oh, man, that's good. That's good keep going keep going I'm sorry to interrupt that's my no, no.
2: I think that's um I think that is for me personally um I still see the pain of what it's caused I think um mm-hmm. it's put a huge wedge between me and my family um that I don't know if it will ever be resolved and that's incredibly painful um but you know I have to be true to who God is and true to who I am and um facts matter to me and that's why i take a different view on a lot of things now that i didn't that i didn't look at the same way before and um it's almost like i have to say that and i'm kind of starting to go into the church as a whole right now um there's a piece i'm going to put into the book about pharisee pharisees or pharisaical tendencies in modern day christians and how there are so many parallels Um, between the Pharisees of that day and the Pharisees of our day. And so as a result, um, I started kind of putting together this whole chart and just, I was shocked at how similar they were. And I remember a few years ago, even without looking at the LGBT issue, understanding the Pharisees and the Jewish people's relationship with the Pharisees and Jesus's relationship with all of this, um, they were highly respected people in their day they, everyone looked up to them with the exception of Jesus, I guess, but people looked up to them. We look at the Pharisees as bad guys today because we're looking at it through 21st century eyes, 20 centuries later, as explained to us by Jesus. So we're kind of going in there already knowing the plot to the story before the story begins. And so that's a fair treatment. But if we were to step into first century um, Israel, and we were to walk around and we would see the jews and how much they had this incredibly high respect for the jewish leaders and teachers and they were the educated ones and they knew what they were talking about whatever they say it goes and we have to follow what they're saying and you know the law had this many commandments and rules and then they added more to it so they can do that because they're closer to god than we are so we need to follow these extra steps to be more spiritual and love god more and then just this whole society and how it looked to the Pharisees. And how they looked at themselves and then how jesus kind of woke everybody up and said Mm-mm. and then i started wondering i said well who do i respect in my world today this is a few years ago like they would have respected the pharisees and i thought of john macarthur john piper um i thought of chuck smith chuck smith you know all of these spiritual leaders josh mcdowell you know all these people who have had a tremendous impact on my life james dobson And I respected these people and I thought, what if they were wrong? What if they've made a mistake on something? And I was like, well, no, but hey, they can make a mistake on something. I can make a mistake on something and it could cause a lot of damage like the Pharisees did, right? So then it kind of made me realize we just need to be careful not to put anybody up on a pedestal and keep Christ on that pedestal. And Hmm focused on God and not focused on what some comes out of someone's mouth and we have so many people that just follow a personality these days or the person that they really respect you know or the lexicon that they turn to or the commentary that they will agree with if they don't understand a certain passage and then call it a day and at the end of the day for most of Christian history people have kind of realized that there were certain parts they didn't understand, they would do the best they could, but it wasn't a life or death matter if they disagreed on it until after the Scofield Bible came out in 1909. And, you know, now we have to give an example, we have to give a reason for the faith that we have within us. And, you know, we have to really know what we believe and why we believe it, or otherwise we're just a weak Christian. And so that mentality didn't come about until after 1909, really. And, and it's mostly something we see in American Christianity, unless we've imported it or exported it to another country in the way that they view things. And so just realizing that these Pharisaical tendencies could be in us, could be in our leaders, and kind of go from there, and that we need to just kind of stay guard, keep guard.
1: Mm, I appreciate um, that personal reflection about the ways that the work... And the digging creates more awe and creates wider open scope. Uh, that is really exciting to me and beautiful. It's a, it makes me think about just the ways that I think my boxes, like, there's just times where I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't put God in a box and I for sure do, and I put people in boxes, but it's such a beautiful moment when those boxes get broken open for good um for the sake of good, not that they ever get broken open for good because I keep on reading, keep on getting exposed, my own fears, my own insecurities are constantly interpreting the world, but it is beautiful to think about <laughs> there's just so much more. God is bigger like this this love and the story that Jesus lived for us is so much bigger. So now Ed for me we'll we'll turn to the passage that you guys talk about and um from first Corinthians, and my my mind i'll read it and then we'll just reflect on it and i think you'll have a lot to say about what it means i think about so let's get into that whatever comes up naturally but i also want to think about what is it like practically because i know that you've dug into the language and all that and that gives us practical guidance and if there's anything that feels like truer today or stands out today differently um let's talk about that first corinthians this is a uh, Paul, this this Pharisee of Pharisees, the one who crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, was passionate to the point of really persecution. Like we've seen a lot of sisters and brothers today who can be that passionate. And it sometimes it's almost like I can just see horse blinders and it blinds us towards this direction back to what Ed was talking about earlier around There's a, we make an assumption and the blinders go on to that assumption. And then we, we, we box God into that tunnel vision and we don't realize that God is doing something different. Well, Paul was that, then he encounters Jesus and it's almost the, the, the idea that his eyes would be closed for a certain amount, uh, for a few days. It's almost, for me, I think a lot about reorientation, um, and directionality. And so to think about, okay, God's shutting it down. You don't need to see things. You don't need to be in charge. You don't need to lead. You need to sit down and not see for a moment and you need to trust into other people's vision. And so anyway, this is Paul. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And this is what he says in, um, chapter six, verse nine. Um, which is interesting. Cause even back to what you talked about earlier Ed, about thinking about malice. And I think. Paul is such a complex person and his thoughts aren't in chronological order. And he transforms and grows as he writes to the cosmic Christ kind of, um, I think, I don't think he fully represents that, that theology, but his theology grows open and bigger and bigger as he, as he grows on his journey too, which cost him a lot. But when I look at this section, it, it reminds me of what we talked about earlier about malice and his heart and this heart to see people represent the goodness of God. And somehow his language gets twisted up and and then also translated into something that creates the very opposite of what he would have hoped for. So here we are in first Corinthians chapter six, I'll read verses nine through 11. And then you let me know what first comes to your heart and what first comes to mind. This is Paul. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Ed, what comes to mind when you hear that today?
2: Well, the first thing is since I've studied this in Greek pretty in depth as well as multiple languages, um what I want to do is we this the phrase that it says, nor men who practice homosexuality. so, what does it say in the greek well there are actually two greek words and so we're going to return the two greek words to this verse so that we're not so that we're giving it proper due respect and Come on. dissecting it from there That's so right. the two greek words we want to return to it are nor malacoi, nor arsenokoitai so so it's the malachoy the idolaters the adulterers the immoral the malacoi and the arsenokoitai these are all the bad people, okay? Why are these bad? What's going on with these people? Well, let's look at malakoi and arsenokoitai. A couple things that we have to look at here. What is the meaning of malakoi? Well, malakoi actually means soft. (laughs) It just literally means soft. And in in fact, in the gospels, it describes a cloth. It's a malakoi cloth, so it's a soft cloth. So it can mean actually a few different things. And we have the word malakoi used a lot before first century, after first century. So keep in mind, dictionaries didn't exist until the 1480s. So if we want to see the definition of a word, we have to go to how it was used in other sentences in that period of time that it was used. So the period of time that the word Malakoi was used, we see it used in a variety of ways. And I can show you plays where it was used, ancient Greek plays and other passages in the Bible and different things like that. And so we're looking for an immoral usage. So when we say soft cloth, we can't say cloth is immoral. So we can't use that to put together our, our creation of a dictionary definition here. So it's kind of the Rosetta Stone. you know? How do we kind of see how it's used in other words in other sentences and then plug it in here. So as a result, when we see it used in other places, it was used to explain someone who basically was kind of lazy, indulged in their own way of living and they would actually fix themselves up for their sexual exploits, mostly for their heterosexual exploits, but also for their homosexual exploits. So as someone who was kind of just trying to do what they could to get other people in bed, male or female, doesn't matter. But let me show you. I brought a couple of my old books here. So I want to kind of show you one of my commentaries that I have here. It's actually an expository um Bible. And so this was written by Dr. Doddridge back in the 1700s, and so oh my goodness, I'm going to show you. Um, this is Dr. Philip Doddridge right here, and uh-huh. he lived from 1702 to 1751. And here's the title of the book that he did. And by the way, this book wasn't published until 1834, so it was 100 years, almost 100 years after he died. But his works continued to live on after he did, and mm. then he published it in 1834. So this is the title: "The Family Expositor." or a paraphrasing version of the New Testament with critical notes and a practical improvement to each section. That's the title. <laughs> they they had hefty titles back then. They weren't kidding with their titles. Okay. But basically what it does, if you look at this book, it gives <clears throat> this part right here is a is the verse from the Bible from the King James version. Oh, man. This mm-hmm. right here is expounding it so it's kind of like what we might call an amplified bible so it takes this verse it puts it in here and then it surrounds it with words to help you kind of expound on how you're looking at it and -hmm. then all the part down here are his notes about this particular verse so you have just this part of the verse and all of this rest of the page talking there's one two there are three verses on this page Mm -hmm. and the whole page is explaining commenting on giving more information about this particular three verse section and this is first corinthians 6 9 that you just read to us and i want to show you what it says here so what they what he do, did what dr doddridge did was he wanted it to flow like a sentence on the amplified portion of the page mm-hmm. so instead of giving all these definitions and then you have to go back and read it and kind of remember how to plug in meanings he would do that for you in one mm-hmm. sweep to help you get a clearer understanding so when he talked about, when in the verse here, when he talks about idolaters and adulterers, he doesn't expound on that because he realizes his audience is going to understand what an idolater is, what an adulterer is. So he doesn't expand on that because there's no need to. But when he gets to the word malakoi, which in the, in the King James was, the word used in the King James was effeminate, okay, in mm-hmm. the King James, mm-hmm. a few other versions. So when he gets there, he realizes his audience isn't going to understand "effeminate" the way that the Bible meant the word "malequoy." So this is how he does it. See, he says, "For I solemn now solemnly assure you, as I have often done, that neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers—see, we're all with with our verses right now—nor effeminate." And then he expounds on "effeminate," which would be persons who give themselves up to a soft, indolent way of living and can endure no hardships in the way of duty and honor.
3: Ooh.
2: What the heck does that have to do with gay people, pray tell? Well, up until the 1900s, not a thing, not a thing, <laughs> okay? So what happens here is our English understanding of the word effeminate has changed over time. Mm. So there's a theologian out there, Dr. James White, He even says he sees effeminacy as a category of sin. That's exactly his quote on his YouTube video from four weeks ago. A category of sin. And I'm like, you could have a kid that's a a boy and he acts feminine. He might not even be gay. He might be straight. And to call that a category of sin is messed up and so wrong and taking scripture out of context and using it as a sacred weapon. That's how lives are destroyed. There's a whole book written by a crazy pastor who talks about, you know, how effeminate boys should be whipped and they should, you know, this should happen. We should knock the girl out of them and all these types of things and all this misunderstanding because people read this verse today. And if they have the word effeminate from their King James, the first thing that comes to their mind is some kid who acts feminine. He's got long hair. Oh, my goodness. He's a sinner. He's going to hell. He's got fingernail polish on. Oh my goodness, he's going to jail. Which by the way, those two examples I just gave are mostly done by straight guys rather than gay guys, okay? And yet this misunderstanding has been harbored and expounded upon over the last few decades. Remember decades, not centuries even, but just decades. So this entire, let me read this again. Effeminate persons who give themselves up to a soft, indolent way of living and can endure no hardships in the way of duty and honor. That's what this word meant up until less than a hundred years ago.
1: I love the way that he phrases that. So powerful. I mean, so much more meaningful to me.
2: It Well, here's the thing. This is another thing is. Because we're not translating these verses very accurately over the last few decades, we're missing out on what God's really trying to communicate with us, people, Mm -hmm. right? Don't people really want to know what's really intended by these words? Don't you think we could gather something instead of, you know, hating on the gays, which wouldn't be good even if God were anti-gay? Don't you think we should really find out what it really does say and deal with what it does say and grow from what it really does say?
1: Well, I think, Ed, what's interesting to me about what you said is that when it works for you, you don't have to question those things. And when I do have my white picket fence and my 2.2 kids and my bank account and retirement, all that's great and everything. I What do I need to question? And
2: the hot wife. Don't forget you've got the
1: hot wife. Oh, and the hot wife. Yeah, it's <laughs> like. When it works for you, I don't need to ask questions. Tell me more. Yes, yes, yes. I think about itching ears. I think about like, oh yeah, for sure. That doesn't have to do with me. So whatever it's like, and that to me, that, that brings that piece of, um, back to how those people who were just degrading your experience and making a mockery of, of these truly experienced, meaningful hugely important feelings and emotions it's like uh, it's just so out of touch you know it's that lack of empathy and to me i think to me that feels like actually i mean i've never said this i don't even want to say the the i don't want to say antichrist but i think the opposite of the incarnated present christ would be the distanced unempathetic not christ different farthest thing from christ so that's um yeah but but back to what we're saying about like don't we want to know that when you're the person on the on the other side of suffering and when it doesn't work for you i remember sitting you know in my mega church job and people like philosophizing about and i and i had an amount of respect back to even what you said about like when you took on this project you said if god really is you know angry if this if this is really true about god and this is what god thinks then i'm going to try and orient my life around that i respect people who do that that takes a tremendous amount of discipline and faith it's not healthy all the time for me there were parts of the bible and i specifically i just remember and it was like these sessions these 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 spaces where people with privilege and power can philosophize about things that don't matter to them because they have privilege and power but when you're talking about whether you're going to make a woman a pastor or not it's like it's just like a you know you're choosing to pick it up and it like this is kind of important because it's kind of important to that person and they're kind of important to you when that's you you just don't have that privilege or the luxury of just being like okay well you can say it can say whatever it wants so I, I i just don't think every not everybody cares. Not, and back to what you said about like the western church and for me when i think about the 1900s and tent revivals and the things that were happening and why they were happening the ways that they were happening it isn't people don't always care about the truth and that's really hard and for me like when i i remember being back again back to like being in that space and thinking i don't know what this means i don't know you know and i didn't at the time i didn't have the time or make it a priority to like dig into specifically around slavery and timothy and i was like all i know is that can't be what god means so we can you could say whatever you want to say i'm not going to go which i'm not flying across the country to dig into these things and be one of two people and the other person is with me on this trip i wasn't doing all that but i just knew this can't be true this just can't be god this doesn't line up with who i know god to be and for me and some of like the work that i've been able to do with teenagers and kids that they're just like they don't come from christian families or anything like that one of the things that has been most helpful to me in navigating conversations and a lot of times around their um stereotype of hatred or anger that they feel like would be christian or that they have superimposed on god well god god can god love gay? and there is like this element of around gay uh, people around LGBTQ community. It's around, uh, just these different ideas. And I would always, my, my anchoring question would be given what you know about Jesus, given the stories you've heard about Jesus, what do you think? So how does that line up with the Jesus that you've heard about three times, four times that last story you heard about Jesus? And it was always a helpful grounding conversation. Um, so five minutes of uh, jibbo jambo to say not everybody cares because <laughs> it works. When it works for you, you don't have to care and you don't have to vote and you don't have to like, you know, you just keep making sure it works for you. But I really
2: It takes someone to have a gay kid before they actually do the work a lot of times. And um, there's a couple of theologians say, oh, they changed their mind because they have a gay kid to 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 bring their kid into the fold or something like that. And I'm like, no, they're just one of the few people that have been exposed to a gay person in their family and care enough to actually do the research. I rarely find anyone who's done thorough research that hasn't changed on this, rarely, rarely. And then usually in those cases, when I ask them more questions, come to find out they're missing a big part of the research. And one is they're not they're not listening to the testimonies of LGBT people to really understand. Because instead they go around saying fake, false, things about these people and i'm like if you actually spoke to them then maybe you would actually say things that are true about them because you're saying things that really aren't true you know so i think i i just want people to seek facts but um something i was going to point to uh just a while ago by something that you were saying was oh man i lost my train of thought
1: about about here. the 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 advantage of privilege or not yeah. having to yeah was yeah. It about oh, that?
2: yeah so I've noticed there are two pivotal points so someone's moving along in their life being their non-affirming little self the way that they were raised and then their kid comes out as gay and so that doesn't mean they turn to become affirming but it means they say wait a minute maybe everything I've always thought isn't true because what I thought was they walk around in parades with thongs on and you know you know speedos and my kid doesn't do that. And Mm -hmm. so they start to say, maybe I need to look into this more. That's all it does is it starts them to study. So then they start to study and they go along. And then because of multiple years or months or weeks of study, they change and become affirming because they're like, oh my goodness, if all of these facts are true, I can no longer be non-affirming. And so it's kind of a two pivot point. First pivot point is they begin the research, something dramatic happens, and then they do the research until they see how much is out there and how many pieces of the puzzle are available. And then they realize they have not been thinking very accurately on this.
1: So you said, those are the the two points are, I encounter someone that matters to me who is gay. So then I have to do research. And then when I do the, a, a certain amount of research, the second pivotal point is when the weight of the research outweighs the weight of the story I've held so far. And so I make a change. Absolutely. And, 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 and to go back, when you did this amount of research, which in in your story, you had lived into in a a non affirming story, and you had dug deep into that story for a long time. Mm -hmm. So you had to dig in my mind, you know, commensurately deep, to do the research to really know, then when you make a change, it costs you family relationships and kinship and closeness to your family.
2: Absolutely, and I think that's, I kind of picture Lady Justice, you've got the blindfold, the sword in one hand and the scale in the other. So I said, I just want to find facts. Once I find an indisputable, irrefutable, not a, the fa- fact out there, I put it on the scale for whichever side it falls on. And then I didn't become a first, I started doing in-depth research probably 8 years ago but I start I did was not affirming until 4 years ago. So I guess it took me 4 years. And that's after living a lifetime of being LGBT, but I didn't really look into it that much because I just ran with what I thought was true instead of questioning it. And so, but it took me about 4 years to pivot from point 1 to point 2. And it I and it's not like this one day you wake up and you say, "Okay, I just became affirming at 2:01 p.m." But instead, it was you wake up one day and you say, These scales are off balance. There is so much on the affirming support side, and I really don't have very much of substance on the non-affirming side. What am I doing being non-affirming? And I think that's kind of how it hit me.
1: Mm -hmm. That's, um, That's really powerful. I'm thinking about my own story because I think for me, this issue around LGBTQ community and and faith it was the same thing for me around the slavery piece and women i was like i'm not i don't understand it but it just doesn't line up with 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 my framework and that's that i wouldn't say like that's that doesn't hold up that doesn't necessarily carry a bunch of water that's like steeped in experience for me i think experience is really important and powerful when we try to act like yeah this is there are you know you have done the forensic work to scrub and get to some forensic truths around how this word has created a weapon for me it was like my experience with god does not hold up for that and i didn't know how to and i think my i didn't have a framework for what it meant to be gay and so um and when i say that i know that a lot of people the their operating picture of what it means to be gay is back to this list of things that paul is talking about it's promiscuous it is not faithful it's wild it's whatever and so i didn't necessarily have that and i again i had the privilege of not having to think about that particular thing but it was when people that meant something to me and, and when I would watch what it cost them and when I watched the rejection that they were experiencing from church, from people around them and the distance in their own families, that's when I said, okay, this matters. <sighs> this is imp- not, not that like, for me, that became like one of the, the tipping things. I said, I need to read more. I need to dig in. I need to understand a little bit more i need to understand these words i need to understand when you know where what does this actually mean to to the level for me but for me like i didn't have like back to the scales of justice in my mind it was just like they were kind of here so once i started doing research it was i was you know i was i was I could easily say i'm affirming but i yeah so I, i just wanted to locate myself on that when you talked about that because for me it's um the work has been fairly recent. Like my posture has always been hospitable and loving because that's part of what my mom modeled for me in different circumstances. Um that was the faith that was most meaningful and most modeled. Mm-hmm. But then when it was like a close friend now can't work for an organization because she's gay. That for me was like okay. If this person, like I know how mature this person is. I know how seriously she takes her walk with God, I know how seriously she takes scripture and people and ministry in general. If she cannot work in an organization like this, there's something wrong with the organization, not her. Um, and that became a huge tipping point for me. Wow.
3: That's
1: yeah. Cool. Yeah. I I think. Um, I'm trying to.
2: Did you want me to go into Arsenal? Koytai?
1: Yeah, let's go into it. Okay, let's do it.
2: So the word arsenokoitai is the second word. And remember, they substituted the word norman who practice homosexuality in the version that you use, which is this NIV. I,
1: I'm, I usually re, I'm, I do all these through ESV and I, I have different versions, okay. but that's the one I use for this.
2: Because each of the versions have changed over time. So it's, it's like I can't I can recognize if they stayed that way the whole time, but I can't recognize. Oh, that's a 1995 NIV. I can't get it down to that detail. But at any rate, um, so they used one one phrase here, "nor men who practice homosexuality. So we talked about malakoi, but the other word is arsenokoitai. And the word arsenokoitai is a compound word. koitai. arsino is singular for men or male. Mm-hmm.
3: Koitai
2: is plural for beds. So one male, many beds it is mm. the plural translation of the word arsenokoitai. And so, again, we have to go to, we don't have a, a dictionary from the first century, so we've got to go to other usage, usages. So the interesting thing is, we don't see the word as a compound word, arsenokoitai, anywhere in Greek recorded history until 1 Corinthians 6, 9. So this is the first time we see this word. So some people have said Paul coined it. He was using the Septuagint from Leviticus 18 to Leviticus 20 when he did it. Maybe that was you know what he was thinking or something like that. First of all, Paul is not going to coin a word and send a letter 500 miles away, let's be real, and expect everybody to understand it when they can't Google it, right? Mm. So Paul is going to. Paul has to be very specific with his language and use it in a way that it will be understood by his audience. So I am firmly convinced there was no question in the world what he was talking about when he sent this letter from point A to point B in the first century. So what we have to do is go to the first century to see how... Was it used in the first century? How did people perceive same-sex attitudes in the first century? And so that becomes a whole discussion of digging into culture and history to really seek and understand what was going on, what was happening here. So let's look at some other usages of Arsenokoitai in history, which would have been post First Corinthians six nine, obviously. So we have a couple of other ancient Greek documents, and I'm not going to get into when they, you know, the details of. All of that, because it's like that'll be in the footnote in the book. Okay, everybody, you got to buy the book if you want the details. But it is. um so an ancient, do we have an ancient Greek document where the writer says some, even some men were committing arsenal koitae with their wives? And so there's an anti gay theologian named Dr. Robert Gagnon, and he wrote a book, and his take on that was it's not it's not like the man is sodomizing his wife. It's not anal sex with his wife because he said arsenal koitai involves two men by itself. And then the wife is a third person. So he said, this is a three-way going on in this particular context. So you have one marriage bed and three people in there. And by marriage bed, he's made a commitment to his spouse, which happens in this example to be his wife. Yet he's bringing a guy into that arsenal Koitai, to, to, to commit a, basically a three way. So, what he's essentially doing is he's committing adultery in front of his wife, but he's doing it because he's the man, patriarchal society, do what you want. And so, this is basically um, what's happening in that particular passage. So, the sin we would call that would be cheating on his wife, okay, is basically what he's doing now. Okay. So that is this, one of the ancient Greek documents that we have that uses the term arsenokoitai. Another ancient Greek document that we have that uses the word arsenokoitai talks about, um, it's giving kind of an Adam and Eve, you know, Genesis narrative. And, and it says, and and Eve committed adultery, I'm sorry, and Satan committed adultery with Eve and Satan committed arsenokoitai with Adam. So, Wow. So when I started looking at that, I said, this is interesting because both of these are forms of adultery, right? If Satan's having sex with Eve, he's committing adultery Mm -hmm. because he's married to Adam. If Satan's having sex with Adam, he's committing adultery because Adam's married to Eve, okay? So in this example, it's basically adultery. So I started looking at a couple of other ancient documents and I was so astounded by it would pair these words together adultery and arsinochoitite adultery and arsinochoitite because in the ancient greek world and roman world if you you know look at the history of this you're you're the man of the house you can have sex with whoever the heck you want and that's okay you just don't have sex with your neighbor's wife because he's property of your neighbor and you're disrespecting your neighbor don't have sex with your daughters or or your uh, husband's wife because that's your daughter-in-law And you're disrespecting your son by doing that. And there are these different things that would be kind of understood. But it was okay to have sex with slaves amongst the Romans um, because you were not, whenever a man would have sex with another man or male or boy, you were womanizing that person. So that's why it was unheard of in Roman society for two people of equal status to have sex together because you would be turning your peer into a woman. And that's not very nice. Why would you do that? Because that person is ruined for the rest of their life in society. You know, we even have a little bit of this remaining to today. If we see Mm. kids on the playground and their boys out there playing baseball and they say, you bat like a girl, you catch like a girl, you act like you, you know, play this game like a girl. That's an insult, right? We're womanizing that person, that male and so that is what they would do, but it was on a bigger scale because society would basically reject them once it was known that they had been womanized. Um, remember, remember, women are property. Women couldn't vote until 100 years ago. Come on, you know, this is, we, we forget how far we have come. Hopefully mm-hmm. we never forget how far we need to go. But when we look at that kind of situation, and when we understand how first century people would have seen this, any kind of male sex activity that was going on would have been done between master and slave would have been done with prostitute maybe a temple prostitute but whatever the case it was kind of on these categories there was no concept for a same-sex committed monogamous relationship of peers there we might as well ask them what they thought about iPhones right in the first (laughs) place, seriously they had no concept of that we see little bits and pieces here and there, but if we really look at the big picture and Marty nissenin I can't pronounce his last name, um, he's from Finland, he wrote this amazing book looking at the contextualization of first century biblical time, you know, same sex activity. And so when we look at it through their eyes and we see these abuses that were taking place, a lot of it would have been pederasty. So an older man with the younger boy, we would have seen Sex with the slaves, so you have a differential power going on here, and somebody has absolutely no say on that. And you, but ultimately, when we see the word, when I see the word "arsenokoiotai," in ancient documents, it's used as, in basically, a male form of adultery, because when they, when the ancients would think about adul, adultery, they would think one, at least one of the two parties committing the sex act are married, right, mm-hmm. and. They didn't have the word heterosexual in their concept or thinking. So it would have been a man and a woman. So adultery, that's what's going on there. And then just to make it clear, it's it's not OK for you to cheat on your wife with another woman, but it's also not OK for you to cheat on your wife with another man. So let's just be clear about that. That's how it was used in ancient documents. And so another thing is, this is this is what I find astounding. Um. I'm reading a book right now that is showing all kinds of information about you know first century perspective on things. They did have an understanding of what we call the active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship. So they did have that understanding because they used certain words and certain language to kind of convey that. But what's happened is it was introduced. I can find it less than a hundred years ago that malachite and arsenoquite would be. Active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship, and that's how the ESV interprets it. That's how many commentaries today interpret it, and that's how many people look at it today. Many theologians, and I laugh at that because that's ridiculous because it doesn't take facts into consideration. So, for example, if we saw if we expected Malakoi and Arsenokoi to be, you know, in lingo today, we call it top and bottom. You know, gay relationship, top and bottom. So if we say Malakoi and Arsenekoitai, is bottom, is top. So if we go with that assumption, then we would expect in many ancient documents, Greek documents, to find the pairing of those two as top and bottom, especially since they did have an understanding of top and bottom. So my friend who was getting her dissertation in Norway, she did research on And part of it, she was looking at all of the historical documents, Greek documents, for the first 600 to 1,000 years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. How many times do we see the word malakoi and arsenicoitai paired together as pairings, which would lead us to believe it's top and bottom because they're being paired. The only time they're ever paired is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Ever, ever. In fact, Paul uses the word arsenacoite in 1 Timothy 1, 10, but he doesn't bring malakoi into that conversation. So not even Paul pairs those two words together, much less any Greek documents. So why did less than 100 years ago, just a few decades ago, and especially it became popular in the the 90s and the early 2000s, and the ESV came out in 2001, and they are probably guilty of propagating this inaccuracy more than anybody I know, uh, of calling it the, the active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship. Why don't they do their homework? Seriously, mm, mm, you're hurting mm. people. Seriously, you don't have to agree with me, but don't say stuff that isn't true is what I would like to say to these people that are putting this stuff out, right? Mm. Just stop it, stop it with the with the false narratives. Stop it, just present facts. It doesn't hurt us if we just present facts and deal with the facts. We might not understand everything even when we are dealing with facts, but let's at least deal with facts.
1: All uh, right. I really appreciate that breakdown of both of those words. And I think for me, what I what it makes me think about is for me, the concept, the concept of homosexual to me never meant overly promiscuous, over sexual, lustful, wild out behavior. And so when you break it down that way, I would hope that, and this is like, you know. <laughs> this is resource and I can't wait for the movie and I can't wait to read your book and give copies away and things like that. But I think about those people who are longing for the intimacy and equity of a relationship through the sexuality that is theirs. And to know this word has never meant that. And if you're listening and you grew up in a family and you're thinking about you're in the face of like losing family relationships and you haven't been able to express yourself fully or to be loved or to be known intimately known, man, this word does not mean that And it just broke it down for us. And it talked about adultery, different forms of the exact opposite of that. And when Paul's trying to paint this picture of this is the the kingdom of God. The reality of God is this reality where you are loved and known and intimate and free. And there is love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And Paul is trying to maybe give some guardrails, handrails of how we create that reality. And the word that got translated to mean homosexuality was really the word that was trying to push, don't be adulterous, don't be that wild out, lascivious lascivious kind of person. And then when we put that word on your sexuality, we are preventing you from experiencing the very thing that Paul is trying to usher you towards. And that guy would say, I love you, I know you and I want that for you. Ed?
2: No, I, I want to read something right here. Um, on There was this guy who I guess he's tight with Dr. John MacArthur and he, they did this whole podcast on our YouTube video about just about the four minute trailer. And at one point, this is what he says about me. Um, he, he says that there's this, the guy in the movie identifies himself by his sensual desires toward other men. So I wrote back to him and I say, For you to say that this guy identifies himself by his sensual desires toward other men is incredibly inaccurate and speaks loudly about your lack of knowledge on this topic, not to mention the fact that you are misconstruing my true character. I have a remarkable love for Jesus in scripture. For you to reduce me to a lustful pile of flesh is dehumanizing, ill-informed, and ridiculously misguided. And I think that's what people think is just, oh, they're just wanting to have sex. They're wanting to have sex. And it's like, like they don't get it. Not even close. And I think that, you know, as people meet gay people and they realize they have love too, kind of like I have love for my spouse and wow, they just want to be loved. And wow, you know, I think that might help them. I'm not expecting people to become affirming by just meeting gay people. But throughout all of history, we have always taken experience together with scripture. When they disagree, we would go mm-hmm. back and say, maybe we misunderstood scripture. Okay. Or maybe our experience needs to be realigned. Mm-hmm. If we didn't do it that way, we would still have slavery today because there's a book uh, called um, um, slavery as a theological crisis, an amazing book. And it There were Christians at the time, well-meaning Christians who said, but my Bible talks about slavery. So if we give it up, we're giving up our Bible and we can't give up our Bible because this is the Bible, right? And that was one of the biggest struggles that Christians who said, I feel it's not right, but it's in my Bible. And it was a complete misunderstanding and misrepresentation of what God was really trying to say. So I think that, and throughout history, I could give you multiple examples, but I won't where we've used experience and scripture and we've looked back at it and we've realized, oh my goodness, our understanding of the scripture is the, what's messed up because we know from our experience that the earth is not in the middle of the universe, that the sun's revolving around the earth and rotating around the earth. I'm sorry, that the earth is rotating around the sun. Right. So we know this. So, oh my goodness, first graders know that. So we were just misunderstanding what we read from scripture. And we have to be careful that we always take into consideration our experience with scripture together, not saying that experience overrides, which is what some people will accuse me of, but just to say that you can't discount experience because then you're not taking the full picture into account.
1: And I I really appreciate that. I think for me, that's one of the guiding hopes and realities of Kinship Collective is to honor experience. And for me, like I get to see more of scripture when I see it through Ed's eyes and Ed gets to experience more of scripture when he experiences it through my experience, because we only have our own experience. And for me, back to like, for me, when I, you know, when you talked about the things that for me, one of the things that most bothers me is when we don't acknowledge experience and act like something is just true. And I'm like that, 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 that gets under my skin. So. For me, when I think about all that you have shared with us through your story, through your journey, I so appreciate you, Ed. And for me, like what I know of you, not just about like going to Yale, putting in the resources, putting in the work, putting in the time, looking at envelopes that have been sealed for years and years. But I know the guy who smiles and stacks chairs on a Sunday. And just part of the crew, that's the humility and the ways that you have been so generous with your story and the ways that you carry that with humility and the ways that you have been so thoughtful and you have been so thoughtful not even to like demean these other people who have demeaned your, some of your most sacred experiences. It speaks to your character. And I really, I think I'm going to hold that walking away from our conversations about true character. And for me, it's just like, yo. Yeah that's that invitation
2: um let me say a couple quick things here
1: damn
2: the ultimate experience versus scripture was jesus himself the pharisees and the jews thought they had all of scripture figured out they were going by the letter of the law Mm. he comes in and with the experience of him in front of us we see that we had messed up the understanding of scripture up to that point right we're repeating the same mistake today but jesus was the ultimate example like if we're talking about experience, example of experience, we experienced God in the flesh. And that turned our heads around on what how we had been viewing scripture and brought it into more of an accurate setting. But something I wanted to, I thought this was really interesting. When I was kind of looking at a couple of things to prepare for today, and I was looking at kinship collective and how you even use that word. I don't know, um, did you study Hebrew?
1: Uh i i have not studied hebrew okay my mother has but but yeah i I could tell you that story to me yeah i'll I'll let you talk to me about kinship in Hebrew. okay
2: the interesting thing is so part of what i explain when i'm talking about the different clover passages and so we didn't talk about genesis 19 which is sodom and gomorrah today but that's actually one of the easier clobber passages to deal with because i mean it's all about gang rape, and um, last I checked, gang rape was wrong for straight people too, but uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong about it. I don't know. So, I, I've never been straight before. What do I know, right? Um, so, but when we look at that, the word that we see that people have been using in this conversation and from taking from the Old Testament and taking from um, Genesis, they turned away from the Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, and in Genesis 3 because Jesus quotes it in Matthew chapter 19, about um the two shall become one flesh right so the two shall become one flesh okay so the word in hebrew is basah basah so that is the hebrew word that is being used here and the word basah is in the old testament of over 200 times and not a single one of those times does it meant does it talk about or is it in the discussion of sexual union Now, today, when we say the two shall become one flesh, what comes to most people's mind? Sexual union between a man and a woman, right? That is what comes to most people's mind. But that's not in the Bible. It's just in people's mind, dirty minds, right? But that's what's in people's mind. What is in the Bible? The term basada is in the Bible. The two shall become one flesh. Okay, let's take a step back in history and look back in the day, you had these villages of people and extended family and aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, cousins. That's your village. My village is over here. We got a couple of villages, eventually city, states, and so forth. But we're at this time when there's a lot of village people, so to speak, back in the day. And so when what we see the term Basada, one flesh, used in same gendered relationships, because when you're in the same village, and your brothers or your cousins, and you're, you're, you're fighting on the, as soldiers side by side, and you're also related, and you're part of the same family group, you are bust out you are one flesh. So what does that mean? That means if you and I are brothers in the same village, and someone attacks me, they're also attacking you. And you're gonna fight for me, and vice versa, I'm gonna fight for you when they attack you, because we are one flesh, right? So that's what it's about, mm-hmm. but when you bring these two people getting married and they're coming from different villages right and the two shall become one flesh then they're tied together with this bassar it means kinship in a strong sense that we don't even understand today it means kinship so mm. that kinship ties you together in a way that we were different villages before maybe we would have fought in the past maybe we disagree but now You're coming into my pack. We're getting married. We're basada. We are we are kinship now. So somebody attacks you. They're attacking me and vice versa. Mm. Because we are we are basada. We are kinship. We are kinfolk now in this strong bond. And what what is Jesus saying about that? That bond is so strong. It's not just like, okay, you can come into my family as long as you cook my dinners and you raise my kids. But if I don't find you attractive anymore, you're out of there, which is what the Jews were challenging Jesus about. Right. And that's when Jesus was, starts to talk about you. Don't forget, one flesh, dude. You're you're one for all and all for one. Whatever expression we want to use, that's what's going on here. And so, mm-hmm. never ha- was it used. And then, in 1987 at the Danvers statement, they used this one flesh concept to come up with the term complementarity, which means plumbing. You know, a man and a woman and the plumbing and so forth. Complementarity. So if you right. look at before 1987, you're not going to find the word complementarity in it because they invented the word. Christians invented this word in 1987 <laughs> to coincide with the narrative of what they were creating. Because they started losing on certain arguments in this conversation of the LGBT conversation. So they start grasping at straws, and one of the straws that they grasped at was basad, one flesh. Mm-hmm. So I just want to see people use that accurately. But I'm like, kinship collected. This is amazing that your name is like what that's all about and what's been so misunderstood. And if you really did understand it, what a difference it would make in our society today.
1: Mm. And that like, encourages me, inspires me kind of at my core. It's funny, you know, when you say like, what a difference it would make. And for me, like the tagline is we, we are ending otherness. There is no, there is no that person in that village over there. There yeah. is no the other person in that. We we are one and there's work to be done though and there's like understanding to be had there's 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 we need to come together but conversation by conversation and we're gonna get there that that means a lot to me i i can't wait to listen to that a couple times more um ed you you've been so generous with your time and the work that you have done i cannot wait to see 1946 the movie i cannot wait to buy your book uh forging sacred weapons forging a sacred weapon or whatever title you end up publishing under um but you have clearly done such tremendous work uh, and i and, you know i'm really thankful for back to what you talked about the ways that you are seeing and experiencing more open and the ways that some of those old ways of being around depression or suicidality i don't know how those linger but i i can see you know i know that you have truth that can combat some of maybe those experience or just the, the practice depression now you have truth that battles that god never said that god wouldn't say that god invites me into this i still so appreciate you ed Ed, how can people learn more about the project? How can they pre-order your book? Where do we go?
2: Pre-order is not available yet, but I would encourage people for the book uh, to go to canyonwalkerconnections.com. Um, and information will be on there. Contact information, updates, stories. Um, also Kathy's this is her website, uh, which I'm on as well. Is it's got a, a wide variety of non-affirming books where she has read them and Put, put reviews, extensive reviews. So she has this expression, I read these books, so you don't have to, um, because they can be quite depressing for LGBT people to read the nonfiction mm. and theology, which is what families are battling people, their kids with right now. Um, regarding the movie, uh, 1946, the movie, uh, you can see trailers, updates, information on TikTok, 1946, the movie, um, there's information and updates on there on, on TikTok. So yeah,
1: Ed, thank you ladies and gentlemen sisters and brothers our brother ed ed like i i just feel like tremendous it's almost like i mean we went longer than normal but i i feel like we were just in a workshop a seminar and i hope that people will be able to internalize or that they'll get what they need but you have given us a lot of what we need um and i just appreciate your generosity and the ways that you have earned all of this information uh and the ways you've been so generous with it so sisters and brothers, uh, we celebrate Ed and Ed's giftedness and his curiosity, his inquisition, his drive, the ways that he's collected this information. They're unique to him, his story, his queerness is unique to him, but your story is unique to you and you are beloved and you are worthy of like inquisition and we want to hear your voice you're worthy to be celebrated and the scriptures still have such a beautiful big wide open story to invite us into into our belovedness and ed today helped us to practice both of those so please know that you are loved and know that we are kinfolk caring for one another belonging to one another healing with one another so much love y'all we'll talk to you next week peace